Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. All right, let's jump in. So we are in week two of a new series on the subject of grace. It's more than we deserve and greater than we could ever imagine. Um, I've, I've had this series kind of in my heart really for over a year. And the original title of this series was supposed to be, I love Jesus, but sometimes I cuss. Uh, a study on God's grace. And uh, my wife said, uh, you shouldn't do that. And, uh, but that's kind of the heart behind this is the grace of God and understanding it and how to receive it. Yeah, so I love Jesus, but sometimes I cuss. That's, uh, that that's going to be the subtitle of the series. Uh, last week, we talked about how grace uh, is better understood when it's experienced. Um, similar to romantic love, you just uh, you can't understand it until you experience it. You can know about it in your head. You can uh, read books about it, watch movies about it. You can memorize the dictionary definition of romantic love, but until you experience it, you don't really know what it's like. And the same is true for grace. Grace is an ancient term that dates back millennia, but it's become so common in our culture and so common, especially in our church culture, that my fear is that we've unintentionally devalued it. Right. We sing about it like we just did. We preach about it like we're doing. We quote Bible verses about it. But have we truly experienced it in the late 80s and 90s? Kellogg's cornflakes sales had apparently fallen off a bit and they still taste terrible. So I can understand why. Um, Anyway, they had done some market research and they found that a lot of their potential customers had actually grown up eating Kellogg's cornflakes. Anybody still eat those today? That was four people. That's just why uh, more market research is necessary. I think you just need to add some sugar and it'll be okay. Uh, but their market research shown that the people, their potential audience had had them in the past, but those people hadn't purchased a box of Kellogg's cornflakes in recent years. And so they came up with this ad campaign that said Kellogg's cornflakes taste them again for the first time. And my hope for this series is that we would all taste grace again for the first time. Like I said last week, that we would move from head knowledge to heart and experiential knowledge. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And this is the result. You become bitter. The word bitter here actually means poison. So let me say it another way. When we miss the grace of God, we are actually poisoning our lives. Our lives become toxic. Religion without grace, without the grace of God is poisonous. Relationships without the grace of God are poisonous. Churches without the grace of God are poisonous. A heart without the grace of God is poisonous. We may not see it at first, but the bitter, no grace root, it starts small. But eventually the toxicity begins to work its way into every aspect of our lives. And we become septic people. 
Bitterness and unforgiveness and pride and self-righteousness begin to seep all throughout our lives. That's why we need grace. Not just to know about it, but to experience it. In the words of Kyle Eidelman, God's grace is compelling when explained, but irresistible when experienced. Grace is powerful enough to erase your guilt. Grace is big enough to cover your shame. Grace is real enough to heal your relationships. Grace is strong enough to hold you up when you're weak. Grace is beautiful enough to redeem your brokenness. Grace explained is necessary, but grace experienced is essential. Now, I want to revisit the words we looked at last week from the cousin of Jesus found in the book of John, John chapter 114. It says this, the word became flesh, it's talking about Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Last week, we talked about how Paul, the great first century missionary, used the word grace more than a hundred times in the letters that he wrote to the churches. Jesus, however, didn't speak about grace at all. Instead, he simply lived it. He was full of grace and truth. And we talked about how when you try to carry a bowl or a glass that's completely full to the brim from one place to the other, what happens? It spills, which just describes who and how Jesus was. He didn't have to speak about it because he was so full. Every time he moved and every time he encountered people, grace and truth, grace was just spilling out on everyone that he encountered. Now, the other side of this coin, we didn't spend much time on last week. John said Jesus was full of grace and truth. And this is important because our ability to experience and appreciate grace is directly related to our willingness to acknowledge our need for it. Our ability to experience and appreciate grace is directly related to our willingness to acknowledge our need for it. Let me say it another way. The more I recognize the ugliness of my sin, the more I can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. Again, back to the letters of Paul, Romans 3.23, a very popular verse of Scripture. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Who's everyone in this letter? Yeah, let me give you a hint. You don't need Greek or Hebrew to understand this word. Everyone means everyone. Everyone has sinned. Now, if we back up a few verses in this same chapter, we read this. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. See, it's not that some of us have rebelled. We all have. And we cannot appreciate what grace does until we understand who we are. Because we are rebels. We have rebelled against God. Luke chapter 19. Jesus tells a story. He said in Luke 19 verse 12, he said, A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, Invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We do not want him to be our king. 
This is a perfect explanation of sin or rebellion against God. Sin is not merely a regrettable lapse in judgment. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have said. I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's not an occasional stumble. Sin is saying, God, I don't want you to be my king. I prefer a kingdom without a king. Or better yet, I prefer a kingdom in which I am the king. Sin says, I run my own life. Anyone ever see the movie Captain Phillips from, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago? Perfect. I love it when I pick illustrations that nobody's going to get. <laughs> it's a great movie. Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks plays uh, the part. It's a true story, by the way. Um, he is a ship captain that carries freight uh, through the ocean. And there was a season of time, I don't even know if it's still going on, but several years ago where piracy was like a, a, a real deal. So his ship is moving freight through the ocean and he's attacked by pirates, not pirates with a patch, peg leg or a hook, uh, but modern day pirates. And they ultimately take control of the ship. And there's this famous scene where the pirate leader looks Tom Hanks in the face on the bridge of the ship or boat. He says, look at me. I'm the captain now. You've probably seen memes about the movie and didn't even know it. I should have put one up there. She'd be like, oh, that's what that's from. One of the most famous memes was when LeBron left and Chris Bosh was left in the heat by himself. And he, never mind. Any NBA fans, before I tell another illustration that nobody's going to get, who's my NBA people? Three people. All right, I'm going to tell it anyway. <clears throat> you can just Google it when you, when you get home. Don't Google it now. I will see you. Don't say I'm just reading my Bible. No, you're not. <clears throat> <laughs> but Chris, my, uh, LeBron leaves the heat, Dwayne Wade's gone, and... Uh, Dwayne there. Oh, Dwayne Wade's there, sorry. I don't even know NBA. What are, anyway, so Dwayne Wade's there, Chris Bosh is there, and it's this picture, it's this meme from the movie where uh, and that Chris Bosh is basically the pirate, and he's looking, and he goes, look at me, I'm the captain now. <laughs> and so, uh, all right, sorry to bother you. This is essentially what sin is. It's the refusal to come under the authority of God. And it's as if we're boarding his ship and saying, look at me, I'm the captain now. But experiencing God's grace, it requires an acknowledgement of our sin. Remember, it's grace and truth. It's this acknowledgement that I am trying to lead my own life. Most of us have a tendency to be defensive. We don't like to admit it when we're guilty. We constantly try to justify ourselves. And we almost always try to minimize the seriousness of the poor choices that we've made. Everything in us wants to deny, to compare, to minimize, and justify the things that we've done. But as long as I approach my sin with that kind of attitude, I will never be able to experience the power and the greatness of God's grace. Because experiencing the radical grace of God requires radical truth. See, a lot of times we read through verses like we just read Romans 3, 21. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And we read that so nonchalantly. We think, well, yeah, technically I have sinned, but I haven't sinned, sinned. Right? We would acknowledge no one is perfect, right? No one's claiming to be perfect. But we're denying the severity of our own sin by comparing ourselves to others. But here's the problem. Do you know what we're doing when we compare ourselves to other people and then feel superior to them? We're sinning. 
Listen to what Kyle Eidelman had to say about comparison in his book, Grace is Greater. He says, quote, It's likely from where God sits that your pride and self-righteousness are uglier than the sins of the person you just compared yourself to. When we dismiss our sin by comparing ourselves to others, we dismiss our need for grace. Adrian and Aubrey are both fantastic students. We've been blessed in our house to not have to fight them to do homework. Um, they're just, they, I don't say they love to study, but they're committed. They get it done. Uh, Aubrey, if you don't know, those of you that are new, she's uh, my daughter. She's a senior in high school. And Adrian, my son, is about to graduate from UF. One more semester. Two more semesters. One more semester. He's doing an internship right now at Forest High School. Okay, he's helping uh, coach basketball, so... Um, they're going to be a great, great team because of you. <clears throat> but when Adrian was in high school, he would play the comparison card from time to time. Now, granted, he was, take, he was part of the ACE program, the Cambridge program, and so his workload was difficult. Uh, his, his academic workload was difficult. And then throw on top of that sports, he was busy all of the time. But any time there was a test or an assignment that he didn't do well on, He'd always compare himself to his friend, Nathan. Now, Nathan is very, very smart. His father's an engineer, his mother a doctor. Uh, I'd venture to say Nathan was probably the most book smart of all of your friend group uh, that he had in high school. But when he would come home and describe how hard the test was, or how hard an assignment was, followed by, Nathan only got a 75%. Or not even Nathan understood what we were supposed to do. He was comparing himself. What he was really saying was, I know this looks bad on paper, but it's not really that bad because if Nathan couldn't do it, no one can do it. Followed by, besides, even if it's a C in Cambridge, it's actually a B on my high school transcript because everything's weighted. So nothing to worry about. Comparison. See, when we attempt to make ourselves look better by pointing out someone else's failure, we are fooling no one but ourselves. Yet this is exactly what we do when it comes to our sin. Yeah, I've sinned, but I'm not that bad. Okay, yeah, so I let a few cuss words out, but at least I didn't hurt anyone. Yeah, I flirted with a man who wasn't my husband, but at least I didn't go out with him. Yeah, I watch porn sometimes, but at least I don't have sex with other women. Yeah, I watch some shows on Netflix with nudity, but at least it's not porn. There's always someone else doing something that's worse than me. And as long as I'm comparing myself to them, then I'm not really that bad. And maybe those examples seem extreme. First of all, that's real life. Secondly, what about the small stuff? The little white lies that nobody cares about those, right? Grace and truth. We cannot cover the truth and experience the grace. They are not mutually exclusive. They are two sides to the same coin. We cannot have one without the other. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes a letter to his protege, Timothy. And he said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Watch this language. Of whom I am, present tense, the worst. 
the great apostle Paul, the writer of close to two-thirds of our New Testament, the great missionary to the Gentiles, Paul, the person responsible for bringing the gospel of Jesus to people like you and me who aren't Jewish, said this about himself, I am, present tense, the worst of sinners. We must be willing to face our secrets. There's no power, hear me, there is no power in denying reality. There's no power in denying reality. There's no power in covering up our sin to make ourselves look better. Anybody ever carried a lie for a long time? You don't want somebody to find out. And then finally they find out, and it's just like this, ugh. You're dealing with the consequences, and maybe the consequences are severe. But the consequences, have you ever felt that where the consequence wasn't as severe as the weight of carrying that lie? I don't know, maybe you guys are too religious for that. I've, I've lived that life. Carried a lie for a long time, and then it comes out and you're like... I hate that people see this and I feel like Adam and Eve in the garden naked and I'm ashamed. But man, I'm so glad to get this off of my back. We must be willing to face our secrets. Max Licato says this in his book called Grace, quote, bury misbehavior and expect pain, period. Unconfessed sin is like a knife blade lodged in the soul. You cannot escape the misery it creates. And he goes on to describe a true story of a Chinese man named Li. I don't know his last name. It looks like I typoed it, so or that's probably autocorrect. I was typing. I typed in the Chinese name, and then it's I don't know what it says now. So we're going to call him Li. Uh, Lee had tried every treatment imaginable to ease his throbbing headaches and nothing helped. An x-ray finally revealed a rusty four-inch blade that had been lodged in his skull for four years. In an attack by robbers, he suffered lacerations on the right side of his jaw. He didn't know that the blade had broken off inside of his head. Talk about a stabbing headache. Wow. Uh, that, was, that was better than you gave me credit for. <laughs> oh, somebody snorted. I appreciate that. I, at least I got one. I got one. Listen, just like we can't live with foreign objects in our bodies, we cannot live with foreign objects in our souls. What would an x-ray of your interior life look like? What would it reveal? Regrets from the past, remorse from poor choices, humiliation over the car that was repoed or the job that was lost, shame over a marriage that failed or the temptation that you just can't seem to resist. We carry this weight and this bitterness as described in Hebrews from earlier, this toxicity, we become moody and angry and easily triggered. There's no wonder why, as Max Licato calls it, there's a shank of shame lodged deep in our souls. So what do we do? Psalm 139, verse 23, the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. 
and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search my heart, God. Show me where I'm wrong. Reveal to me the areas of bad and wrong attitudes. Uncover my pride and my arrogance. Author and pastor Rich Velotis would call this contemplative prayer. We don't just go to God with a checklist of things that I want Him to do for me. Right? Go to Him and I spend moments in silence. Even a few moments ago during our music, and you know, there were moments where we weren't singing songs that were on the screen, and there was this, you know, it's, if you're not accustomed to that, there's it's it's like it's a little bit awkward. You're like, I don't, what am I supposed to do? What what do I do here? That's because our lives are go, 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 go. We have no silence whatsoever. But it's in those silence, in those silent moments, even in our worship, when things get still. That we can hear the voice of God. We contemplate. That I would encourage you in your own devotional time. That you spend time in contemplation. You're not just bringing a list of things, of to-dos to God. But we go before Him like the psalmist and we say, Search my heart. Know my heart. See if there's anything that's wicked inside of me. Let's uncover it. Because I can't experience grace if I'm uncovering, if I'm covering up the truth. So we search, we ask God to search us, and then what? Another very famous verse of Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, he writes, verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Truth and grace, same side of the same coin, or two sides of the same coin. If the truth's not in us, then neither is grace. And then he says this, this is important. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Such good news. The brother of Jesus, James, writes this. Therefore, confess your sins. There's that word again. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Listen, we must face reality. If we're going to experience grace on a deep level, then we must be willing to open up the deepest places of our lives. We have to ask God to reveal those places, those areas. Then we confess them to God. And you might want to confess them to a brother or a sister in Christ. Because healing, the brother of Jesus says, comes with confession. Grace comes with honesty. We have to move away from the I'm not that bad or at least I'm not fill in the blank mentality. We're fooling ourselves when we act like this. That's not grace. It's selfishness. It's self-reliance. It's I'm the captain now. It's blending grace and works. And the two simply do not mix. Grace cannot be earned. 
We cannot work hard enough for it. We cannot be good enough for it. And we certainly can't receive it by acting like we're better than we actually are. Grace requires authenticity. Look, and I know that this is hard. And we often want to find another way. But hear me, there is no other way. Before we collide with the grace of God, we must collide with the truth of our own sin. The greatness of the grace of God means I don't have to keep trying to convince myself that I'm not that bad. The truth is I'm worse than I ever wanted to admit, but God's grace is greater than I've ever imagined. I'm going to close with one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I've shared from this passage many times. It's found in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. It says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, this is exactly what we've been describing, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee would have been the well-to-do, respected member of society, and the tax collector would have been the most hated. Everyone looked down on tax collectors. The Pharisee, it says, verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers and evildoers and adulterers, I'm not like these people. We're not even like this tax collector. Look at me. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Such arrogance. But don't we do the same thing? Maybe we don't actually pray things like this, but we think it. I don't usually go to God and say, God, look at this guy. I'm better than him. But again, radical honesty and radical authenticity, there are moments when I think it. Justifying our own sin, justifying our own bad attitudes, justifying our own bad habits. Because at least I'm not like fill in the blank, this person. Or at least I don't do fill in the blank. Verse 13. This is me. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I was talking to somebody before service and it wasn't an anomaly or a one-off conversation for the almost five years that we've been here. We've heard over and over and over. What I love about this place is it's so real or it's so raw or it's so authentic, which is authentic, authenticity is a stated core value of our church. 
people that have never been to our website, they've never read our core values and couldn't care less come in and they feel authenticity before they even know it's part of who we are. And I think that that's partly because I've done so many stupid things. I've let people down. I've messed up since, I mean, I went into ministry as a 20-year-old kid. And I've done things that hurt people. People put trust in me that I wasn't worthy of. And the old saying, we've used it here, don't let your gift take you where your character can't keep you. My gift took me to places where my character couldn't sustain me. And people lifted up my gift. And, oh, you play the piano so good. You do this, so you do that, blah, blah, blah. And they elevate the gift. And I didn't have any character inside. And I would fall and I would let people down. I've needed grace all my life. I've needed grace to pick me up, just like the song that we sang. I have a heart for perpetrators because I've been one. And I'm say, we should never minimize help for victims. It's not one or the other, but we have a tendency to make it either or instead of both and. But if somebody hadn't shown me a perpetrator grace, then I wouldn't be here. And so when people make mistakes and people mess up, When the person who's lost his job because of a bad decision is there and everybody's going, you're so, we told you to stop doing that. And everybody's just pushing down on the person who lost everything. Or the adulterer is sitting on the edge of his bed. His wife is gone and his kids are gone. He's lost everything. And everybody's like, you shouldn't have done that. My heart is to go to him and put my arms around him and say, yeah, you shouldn't have. But man, God's grace will get you through this. Because even if we haven't done the dirtiest and the darkest, we all need God's grace. We need it. Amen. And if we don't come to God like this tax collector, stand at a distance and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're never going to experience his grace. Amen. Last week, we defined grace as something that had to be experienced rather than explained. This week I'm telling you and I'm telling myself that the only way to experience grace is through brutal, raw, unfiltered honesty. When we come to the Father like this tax collector, God will respond. And you can expect that His grace will meet you right where you are. Now look, I know that there are people in this room that are really connecting to this message. There are other people in the room that have Kellogg's cornflakes grace. <laughs> Experienced it a long time ago, but it's been a while. For those in that category, I would encourage you to go to the book of Psalms. Go to the Lord and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there is any wicked way in me. Pour out your heart before the Lord. 
allow him to uncover the secrets. Listen, I know, again, I know this is a heavy message. Sometimes it's just heavy. It is what it is. We're confronted with things that we have to make decisions about. Look, we, we can read in Scripture what sin is, what things are sin. A lot of people, well, they want a list. They, I want the Ten Commandments. Or I want the, tell me, just put me in this box and tell me where, where's the boundaries and what if I step out, then I'll know. I'm not here to describe that for you. If I could give you a, not a new definition, but a, an additional definition of sin, going back to what we talked about earlier. It's a moment of saying, God, I'm in control. I'm the captain now. I don't need you to run my life. And that's what we have to repent from. That's where we need forgiveness. Because once we come into a place of complete submission to his authority, then all of the other things begin to work themselves out. The great thing about our Father is that He knows the depths of our heart. He knows our deepest, darkest secrets. And He loves me anyway. There's no sin. There's no attitude. There's no action. There's nothing that you've ever done. Whether it was last night on the way to church or 10 years ago. There's nothing that you've ever done or will ever do. That will disqualify you from the grace of God. His grace is everlasting. His grace is forever. Is there a moment where you can't repent? I don't know. There's all kinds of theology questions and arguments that go on. Here's what I know. Jesus is grace. And Paul said that his love, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. In Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that we don't continue to sin because he says, look, where, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Should I just continue to sin so there can be more grace? And he says, absolutely not. That's not grace, that's self-righteousness, that's selfishness, that's arrogance. Grace is submission to him and say, you're the captain. You'll always be the captain. Search my heart, reveal to me what needs to be changed. Because we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me to everlasting. Back to Hebrews 12. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. The word misses is the same word that's used in Romans 3.23 when we read, for all have sinned. 
all have missed the mark. One translation says that's that word. It's just the same. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't miss the grace of God. The writer of Romans says, we've all missed the mark. But don't miss the grace of God. We've all missed perfection, but you don't have to miss the grace. We've all missed, missed our mark. We've all missed our perfection. But you don't have to miss the grace. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.